Hello, and welcome to Art Speaks, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Arnold Lehman. After a half century in the art world, mostly as a museum director in Baltimore and in Brooklyn, and five years at Philips as senior advisor, which means someone who is old, knows a lot of people, and isn't shy about voicing opinions, Hosting a series like this seems like a perfect fit for me. So for each episode, like today's, I'll be at my desk having a socially distant conversation with friends from the art world, artists, dealers, museum directors and curators, collectors, and critics, to learn from them how and what they are doing and what is on their minds today and for tomorrow. So let's get started with our conversation with my friend, artist Jeffrey Gibson. Where are you? Are you in Brooklyn or in Hudson? Uh, I'm just outside of Hudson in my studio. Okay, um, great. You also have a studio in Brooklyn? No, I don't, no. We moved upstate entirely in 2012, everything. Ah, wow. You're a country person. Totally up here, yeah. <laughs> Well, Hudson is a great place. There's so many wonderful people in and around that, if I could call it a neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it was definitely the right move for me. And especially during this time, I think um, we have all benefited from a kind of decision to move up here and change our lives a bit. Yeah, not a bad idea. And you were commuting back and forth to Bard where you were teaching? Yeah, but Bard is only, I live in Germantown, New York, so Bard is only 15 minutes away from where Wow. You could walk. I could. I could bite down. <laughs> <laughs> and so what are, what are you teaching at Bard? Uh, obviously, studio of some kind. Yeah, I mean, there. Uh, I actually will only teach one class going forward. Um, and um, I teach a seminar class in studio arts. I've been teaching painting, performance, and um, drawing. But going forward, I'm teaching a class on the book The Fold by Jos Deleuze. And... How, um, how are your students? Are they totally, uh, I mean, if I were your student, I would sit there in utter rapture. Um, how do these kids behave these days? Uh, they can be a tough crowd. And I have to say, I, bet, I, I credit the Bard student in particular. I think I've attracted um, a certain kind of student who believes and wants to make content-based work. So they're not always the strongest formally, but they're really idea driven. So this class allows us to really just talk about ideas. And, and this is the first semester I'm teaching the Deleuze class, but we really had to talk about what chaos means and it was not difficult to talk about um, and how everyone experiences chaos differently. And, you know, so um, I think they're great. I've had a really good experience with Bard students. Well, I have to say, I think chaos is a great um, is a great word to stimulate a lot of thought processes. Yeah, I, I didn't teach a lot, but I have to say, uh, the last time I taught was at uh, uh, Cooper Union, uh-huh. and the course I was giving was called Modern, and it was a class purportedly for painters and other medium-driven students there. And it wound up that I only had engineers in the class. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, what an opportunity for me 
mm -hmm. uh, to learn more from them. And it was fantastic. So that was my best, I must say, my best teaching experience where I was teaching people I wasn't supposed to be teaching. Right. And so I walked away with more than I, than I brought in. Uh, Bard is a wonderful place, though, I think. It is. It's great. I'm involved with a graduate school in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. and uh, you know material culture and it's fascinating so yeah. I envy you for dealing uh, more with the students uh, where they're really becoming makers of things yeah I have to ask you a question sure. that I don't even know if it's even true but I either read someplace or someone told me that the way you got to the Royal Academy of Art Royal College. Royal College of Art in London uh -huh. was because the Choctaw nation of which you're a part yeah. undertook the cost and sent you there. That is true. That is true. I actually, um, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago for my undergrad. And when, um, when it was time to um, think about graduate school, I wrote to Chief Philip Martin, this would have been 1994, and I said to him that I wanted to come and teach on the reservation in central Mississippi upon graduation. And he wrote me back and he said, um, you know, he was thrilled with my desire to teach, but unfortunately, two things. One, I would have to have a master's degree to teach, and two, um, they had just cut all arts education in the school systems on the reservation. Like every place else in America. Yeah, and replaced it with trade-based learning. Well, that's not, that's not bad, but as opposed to some other schools, but in any event. So uh, when I got that letter, the reason I held on to it was actually because I was so thrilled to have his signature. <laughs> so I kept it and I, I held on to that letter. And then, um, you know, graduate school wasn't even really in my mind then, but after I graduated, I was thinking about graduate school. I talked to my parents. There was no way we could afford for me to go. And um, it was up to me to figure out funding. So I wrote to Chief Martin. And I know in his letter, he had said, if there's ever any way we can help you in the future, please ask. So I wrote him. And by this point, I had already gotten into Royal College. Um, and um, total, this was not anything I saw coming. You know, I didn't even know about Royal College. It was introduced to me from a friend of mine during my time at SAIC. And, um, and so I wrote him and I said, look, I have this amazing opportunity. And you said I needed a graduate degree. And um, I totally didn't expect to get in. And then he just replied and he said, we will help you. He didn't say, you know, to what amount or anything. And I know that it was, I was in London for two weeks and I called him and I said, look, I haven't figured out a way to pay for this any other way. Like, just tell me what you're going to provide. And the next day he sent a check to the registrar for the full amount of my tuition. Oh my goodness. And then a contract, basically it was a letter of agreement that we would, um, he would pay for my time in London for the full degree, which was two years and um, some of my living expenses. Wow. It literally came after I was already in London and in the situation that I was like ready to get a ticket back home. It was amazing, and, um, and, and he had a really clear understanding that he did not actually want me to return to the reservation. Um, he basically was very direct and told me, he said, 
you know, you have an opportunity to exist in the world and be a successful person in the world. Um, you know, we will benefit from your success in the world. Like, don't feel that you need to come back here. Um, and so, and he would reiterate that over the two or three years that we were talking. And um, so it was interesting because it was kind of a, you know, it's almost like you want to pay back in, you know, every dollar for dollar you want to pay back. But he had spent his, his career as um, chief um, going to Congress and fighting to bring labor to central Mississippi. You know, he was really a business person. And he said that when he would go there, my going to Royal College, my finding success in the world gave him reason, new reason to talk about the success of the Choctaw Nation, of what had been accomplished. So, um, yeah, he was great, really wonderful. Was this, uh, was he an, an older man at that point or is he? He was probably, let me see, he died in the early 2000s and um, he was our tribal chief for about 50 years. Oh my goodness. So he probably at that time was in his, I'm gonna guess early 70s. Yeah. I know very well how he feels, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> the age-wise at least. I have to say that that is an amazing story of parental care, caring and understanding at a, at, a, at a nationwide level. Yeah. And that he could individualize that. How many, um, how many people in the Choctaw Nation at that point, would you say? Oh, at that point, probably 8,000. Yeah, but that's still a lot of people. I worry about on an individual basis. Yeah very diversified because there's um, people who live on the reservation and the majority of the people actually live off, if not in surrounding communities. Wow. Yeah. Well, but that, that becomes that relationship to the Choctaw nation and to so much of your traveling comes mm -hmm. through so clearly in your work. And um, would, would you mind, I mean, I was, as you saw when I came up to you that evening at Brooklyn, I was overwhelmed with mm -hmm. what I had seen. I had worked for close to two decades there as director, trying to bring together mm -hmm. the, the ethnicity, the nationality, the gender of those hundreds and hundreds of thousands of works at Brooklyn into a visual way that spoke to people very clearly mm -hmm. when they came in. And that's why um, if you ask the director, you know, Ann Pasternak or, or Eugenie Tsai, who was one of the curators involved, um, I was just overwhelmed in the most wonderful way. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that exhibition? Oh, and it's going to be back on view. But this all, when this all opens up, it's gonna be there for like six more months or, yeah. or more even. Yeah, there's definitely time to see it. Um, well, first I wanna say I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I'm also, um, I, think, I think for me, it was not difficult to put it together because what you're seeing when you walk into that exhibition is exactly how I think. It's exactly the way that I piece together some way to articulate to myself how I make sense. You know, like how did, how did Jeffrey Gibson, 
um, you know, live in Germany, Korea, London, connected to, you know, Mississippi, connected to Oklahoma, queer person, married to a Norwegian man, father, you know, I think that I've grown up with people um, kind of exclaiming, like, can you believe that a Native American knows about Matisse? Can you believe that he went to London? Can you believe, you know? And so all of it, it it's just this, um, this intention to connect the dots for people, for them to realize that I am a microcosm of how culture initiates, subculture initiates future culture. It's through travel, through conversation, through dialogue and questioning that's that the stories emerge. And it's sort of what I'm addicted to. You know, I could sit and talk to anyone and if they're willing to share with me their vulnerability in their storytelling about who they are, I'm fascinated. Uh-oh, we only have a half hour. I mean, I, maybe we can extend it to three or four hours because I would be happy to do that. Anyway, I interrupted. Well, it's amazing, right? I mean, how people get from one place to another. And so I think about my my family, my grandparents. And this is another thing is I think, you know, I grew up with most people being aware of um, of Plains tribes. And so with my tribal affiliations being Southeastern, um, it looks very different. You know, the belief systems are different. The creation stories are different. And they're not what falls into the kind of understanding or, or visualization of Native American when you think about American Indian history. Right. So, um, so I also wanted to bring that into the picture. But I think having a museum open up their collections and allow you to author, because um, they really exist in museology, anthropology, and archaeology, right? So these are all disciplines that look in the rearview mirror with a very authoritative voice. And an artist, we get to exist in the present tense with an equally authoritative voice, but we don't have to create direct linear links, you know? So I think for a museum now can do it, let's say over the last 10 years, I think museums have been more open to open these collections. But previous to that, NAGPRA, Native American Graves Repatriation Act. I know it well. Put a lockdown on a lot of museum collections. Right. Because they had to be figured out who could speak for them, which ones could be on view, how could they be interpreted? So um, I've been waiting since working at the Field Museum in Chicago, which was in the mid '90s, to do something like this. You know, so it, this is the time period where those collections, you know, they've gone through through numerous kind of um, I don't know, kind of filters at this point. That uh, for a lot of people don't know this about the Brooklyn exhibition, but there were three pieces that we did seek. Uh, permission to show them and the permission was not given so without any and, question and not by the museum not by the museum but by the the tribes who they're affiliated with right because and, they they were religious in some fashion right right and so and and um and that is a very progressive way i mean it, there was no argument on my part or the museum's part you know it really is up to the to the tribal nation so yeah so i think it's um it was really wonderful. And I, I tell people time and time again, I know people look at my work and think that I am the inventor of these aesthetics or the way I use materials or the color palettes. They are so informed by historic objects and the way that people innovated with fabric, with color, 
materials. There's very little in my work. What I am really responsible for is the way that I remix them, you know? But I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, you know, I tell people all the time, it's like, if you want to know where this comes from, like you really have to look at these collections. And so when we were putting the show together, I remember being concerned that it would feel eclectic, you know, and eclectic oftentimes means that there's not really the connection between objects. But it was wonderful to see my work amidst all of this color, all of this pattern, all of these materials rooted in history, and it just made sense. Uh, it, it did. And unfortunately, I didn't have, you know, you go to an opening, and the problem is, you know, I was former director, so everybody comes up. I mean, I spend, if I'm there for two hours, I spend an hour of it with the guards talking about, you know, what, what's going on with their families and so on. So I never had really enough time. I spoke with you and Eugenie and, and Nancy Rossoff and others. Um, by the time I sort of extricated myself and really looked at the exhibition, so I, I was desperate to come back and then closed. Yeah. So, um, you know, I surely, I think I know people there. I surely could have snuck in yeah. at some point. But now I know that I can go back and spend, you know, to my heart's content as much time as I'd like, which is going to be such a great pleasure for me. You know, when I, after being in Brooklyn for a while, and writing about and talking about the museum or what goes on in that community and an extended community, I always use the, um, the idea of pushing against this American melting pot. Mm -hmm. I never liked the idea of the melting pot. Mm -hmm. What I like was the idea of my idea and others, I'm sure too, that it was a big, crisp salad. Yeah. <laughs> and every piece of that salad maintained, they were all mushed together, but every piece of that salad maintained their identity. The lettuces, the cucumbers, the tomatoes, the, and even if you covered it with salad dressing, they still had identity. Yeah. But when you brought them together, they were better together mm -hmm. than just left on the side you know, there's this great tomato. Yeah, I love tomatoes. But, and there's this great, I don't know, radish or something. But working together and understanding them together and bringing them together in different ways, yeah. to me, is how I try to make sense of that great museum and other great museums, which slowly are understanding where we are and what we are. But of course, Brooklyn is the best laboratory in the world. Um, and it's, it's a miraculous place for people to be together yeah. and better understand. And the minute you go to another big city where mm -hmm. you think you have the same kind of thing going on, yeah. it's not. Yeah. Um, so I am, you know, I'm terribly prejudiced. Uh, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm 76 years old. I'm not going to outgrow it. Right. <laughs> at this point. But I just, I, I am making this, this plea that everyone, 
who is listening to this or everyone who has followed Jeff's career up to now, you haven't seen this exhibition, uh, forget about him as an artist, but think of this as a historic and important way to open up minds and better understand history. Um, it was just fabulous. Yeah. So what's your so what's your next thing? You know, can't sit well, still, obviously. No, we've actually been very, very busy. Um, I think, uh, well, there's a couple of projects going on right now. The next thing that will probably happen in New York is I'm doing a solo project with Socrates Sculpture Park in Long Island City. Oh, great. That was meant to open um, in a couple of weeks, but we're going to push it a couple of months. And um, so it'll be in the fall. It'll be in the fall or late, late summer. Um, and it's a, it's a, a monument. It's a wheat pasted monument with text and um, it's quite large. It's about, um, it's kind of a ziggurat structure. It's 44 foot square and 21 feet tall. Oh my goodness. And we're um, programming it other than it just being visual. We're programming it with performers. Um, a lot of um, First Nations performers um, who are just really incredible in their own right. Some from New York, Emily Johnson, who's a choreographer and dancer. Laura Ortman, who is a musician, and then we're bringing in Raven Chacon from Toronto. Oh, terrific. And, um, and then there's some other programming as well. But we're really talking about, um, you know, uh, kind of different kinds of smaller um, histories that are maybe unknown that I think people have emerged with really strong, unique individual voices. Um, that piece will also travel to the De Cordova Museum next year. Outside of Boston. Yep. And then um, I'm also doing a project with um, the New York City Ballet that'll open in a year. And um, doing another project with the Wattis Institute in San Francisco that will open later this year in the fall. Um, and then, yeah, there's a number of things. I was meant to open a show with Robert's Projects in Los Angeles at the end of May. Um, we're postponing that but looks like we'll be opening in the fall as well. So that's really what my studio has been working on currently, um, trying to finish up those pieces. And um, yeah, we're just moving along. Well, all good, absolutely all good. And uh, it's so interesting to, um, and good for the artists and I think, and good for the space, especially alternative spaces or more unusual spaces yeah. where you don't find work like this happening, like Socrates Park, yeah. um, which is a wonderful space. I mean, so much has gone on there. And yet, you know, it's right across the water. I mean, you could almost swim to Manhattan. And I've always been upset that few people from Manhattan take that swim over. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm telling everybody, you could always get a car back these days. It's not a problem. You don't have to stay in Brooklyn if you don't want to stay in Brooklyn. <laughs> but, um, and Wattis is a great idea too. Yeah. Um, and um, because um, the museum that you're working with outside of Boston has been known for sculpture for such a long time, outdoor sculpture, yeah. such a long time, that again is a, a terrific, um, a good for them, good for yeah. them. Yeah. Um, I'm so happy to 
I'm so happy to hear that. So when you're not dealing with one project after another after another, what do you do up in Hudson these days? Uh, we have two small kids. So we have, oh. <laughs> we have um, a daughter who's about to turn four and we have a son who just turned one. Okay. So um, they take up right now a lot of time. <laughs> a lot of time. A lot of time. But it's been, it's been really wonderful to, to spend this much time with them. Um, and otherwise, you know, we've really tried to set up our life where we can do a lot of gardening. We're outside a lot at home. Um, you know, we, I, I really love the way that we've set up our life here. Um, I'm either teaching, I'm outside, I'm with family or I'm at the studio and the studio is such a wonderful place. Before I moved to this, this building and I bought this building in 2016, um, I was working out of a 300 square foot studio in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And so you knew where everything was then. Yes. 300 square feet. Um, and now this building is a 14,000 square foot building, um, where I've been here now for almost four years. And, um, we have an amazing team of studio assistants. Um, and you know, everyone, no one ends up in Hudson by accident. You know what I mean? This is a choice of a place to live or to continue living. Right. And so, um, I'd say it's a real, it's a, it's a very real community. Well, I, I do envy you. Uh, we have a little terrace, which we love to be able to get out on. And yeah. the weather has been not so great, which, and then when we said, today is the day, this was last week, we went out and all of a sudden, there's a swarm of weird bees who mm. inhabit our terrace or who dive bomb in our terrace for two weeks, the end of April and the beginning of May every year. And they're so, they look like little submarines. They're so big. They're like twice as big as <laughs> bumblebee. And they don't, I don't think they sting. Uh-huh. But they, they make you crazy because they come up and they hover around you. And even if you're, you know, you don't swat out at them, you don't do anything, they make you really nuts. And yeah. so we try to shoo them away and, you know, without doing something terrible. And they just won't give it up for what they do there. We're on the 23rd floor of our building. What are bees doing up on the 23rd floor? I think they got lost one year and now think of it as a vacation. Uh, so we have not, well, before when it was cold out, we went out a bit, but now we're waiting for the bees to, to disappear. So I envy, even though I don't garden, I love looking at gardens. Yeah. And it would be nice to be able to walk around, but I think that that's, that'll happen pretty soon. I want to see your wrist again. Does Show me your wrist. Oh, how terrific. Yeah. Now, so you do this in a lot of the work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I took, it was a little glimpse when you moved your hand at the very beginning of our conversation. Oh, that's so wonderful. Absolutely. Where does that pattern come from? Is there precise derivation for it? I've always decided that I wasn't going to ever copy like a historic pattern. You right. Know, I've spent a lot of years trying to, um, invent new patterns or patterns that I'm not copying from someplace. Um, and then one year, you know, the, the goal has been to try to match up pattern with content um, so that it's, yeah, so it's not just a formal decision. But, um, 
And so I, I really looked at the patterns that I was choosing over the past two years, and this was the pattern that shows up the most. And this kind of triangle pattern, you can build almost anything with, and it became the kind of grid for me in terms of like designing things. So, and then when I had this made, um, and I drew this and then had it tattooed in, where was I? I think it was in Milwaukee where I had it done. But um, what I love about it is I realized that what I considered to be negative space, like in the design, which was white, right. was actually my skin tone. So that it becomes a color, you know, kind of irregardless. So, but yeah, and um, that was really it. And then I, I, I've continued to use these, these triangles and manipulate them continuously. Uh, no, and they're, uh, and they're great. And certainly in the Brooklyn show, and in other of your shows that I that I've seen over the years, um, the so I want to ask one question, which is kind of a nonsensical one, but one that I would like to. In these years, when your success and achievements have just you know just one after another, is there um, is there a, a little piece of that career that you'd like to forget? Is there a, a, a group of objects that you would just as happy no one knows about? The I was for a brief time, I have to tell you, a painter. Uh-huh. And you would have to go really far and wide to see anything because I gathered almost everything I did. Whatever someone would sell back to me, uh -huh. I bought back. I'm talking about when I was really young. Yeah, uh, I didn't have a lot of sales. You know, there were fifty, hundred, two hundred dollars sales, but for me, that was a lot of money. And uh, I got them all back. I smashed them all up, and I just got, you know, those garbage trucks that come and take away construction stuff to just take it all away, uh, because I really, uh, my work was too derivative. Uh huh. I didn't know enough, and I figured out that whatever gene set I have was not the gene set to become a great artist. Mm. So, and I don't tell many people that, I just told everybody that. Um, yeah, okay. I don't know why I did that. But uh, if any of you have something that you bought from someone who bought it from me, please give it to your local um, garbage department, sanitation department, and have it uh, <laughs> thrown away. So is there any, anything that you thought you went off track? You, and this is not a trick question. No, 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 you no, could no, say no, 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 everything has really worked out the way I, I thought, and I've been building up over the years. I don't regret anything. I really, I know everything I've ever made has always been with the intention of trying to articulate something so that people could comprehend it. Like, I think when, um, you know, 2010, 2011, I was on the cusp of walking away from being an artist. And it really had to do with the frustration of feeling like people weren't comprehending the materials, the narrative, the content of what it is I was really working very hard to come across. And so when the show happened at Participant in 2012, I had zero expectations. I was like, make the work that you want to see exist, whether it was made by you or somebody else. This is the work that you think needs to exist in the world. And this is the story that needs to be told. And it was people 
who people who responded to it and could so clearly understand what it was I was saying. And that became a sort of barometer for what I consider to be a successful work. You know, it's like there's a, there's a degree of communication. And with art, you get to play with like subtleties, you get to play with poetry, you get to play with metaphor and analogy and materials and histories. So it's not like it has to be this linear communication, but you get to play with the kind of more ephemeral qualities and atmospheric qualities of communication. And so, for instance, when I started working with text, I thought, you can't work with text. It's like, it's so direct, it's so clear. And then I realized my interest in language and text is the, the way that it's slippery, the way that it means something different to everyone who reads it or everyone who says it. And that's where the openness comes from. And I think that's why, for instance, like pop music, you know, a song that I love singing could be the same song that you love hearing and we're hearing it and saying it completely differently. And it's so specific to us, you know? And, and that's where, um, that was the way that I started understanding poetry because I always thought poetry was about this slippage and this kind of intentional slippage. But yeah, so I think, and, and um, yeah, so I don't really, when people ask me about, you know, I found a piece of work of yours from 2005 and it looks nothing like what you do now. I can walk that person through exactly now why they can't understand that piece, you know? And I, so, to be honest, a lot of it has to do with the narrow definitions of what people are aware of when it comes to Native American art. These narrow definitions of what it looks like, what it sounds like, what the materials are. And so previously, I was too distant from people's understanding for them to understand the content of what I was doing. And slowly I started removing the references and I was like, why paint something referencing hide when you can just use hide, you know? Or why use a dot of paint when you can just use a bead? And there was no need for this translation, you know? Um, and then the question of like pigeonholing was another thing people were saying, you know, like, why aren't you afraid you're going to be pigeonholed by using beads and hide? And truthfully, I was like, no, not the way I'm going to use them. Like, <laughs> I mean, and I'm perfectly thrilled and, and honored to be a continuance of those histories. You know, it's really a history of innovation. It's a history of being able to look at something that comes into your world and being able to find other ways of supporting yourself through the way you use it. And you're not disregarding history, you're adding to it. Exactly. And Jeff, I think you just, in summary, explained why I never got those, I never had those genes um, necessary to go through that process, which in and of itself is really beautiful. And what comes out of it um, is, is, you know, the visual world that makes us, uh, I hope, better people mm -hmm. and more understanding and more aware of our own details and our mm -hmm. own lives and that intersection. So um, I can't wait to see what's going to happen at Socrates. Um, and if I get out to California at Wattis, yeah. um, 
I might even get in and around Boston, but not probably at that point. So I'm, I'm really looking, and mostly I'm looking forward to spending as much time as I want uh, at Brooklyn, looking at every single detail uh, of, what sh of what you did. And I know how thrilled um, uh, Eugenie and Nancy and everyone was with your being there and helping them to better understand their own collections. So I really want to thank you for all those experiences for, you know, I can't speak for anybody else but myself, but I really appreciate it. And I knew I had to have you uh, to speak to you um, on this program because as an artist, I don't, you know, um, you've got so many people uh, approaching you for everything that I'm glad we got this little opportunity. And I hope it's the first of many. That's what I'd really like to be able to do. So um, have a, um, a great lockdown. I think, you. you're doing it, <laughs> I think you're doing it very well. What are the kids' names? Um, Phoenix is our son and Georgiana, Gigi, is our daughter. Oh, how great, how great. Tina, what a great name. Um, and Georgiana is also a beautiful name. So uh, take care, be well. Thank you very much. Work hard. You've got a lot to do. And uh, thank you very, very much for joining us. Of course. Of course. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was my great friend, Jeffrey Gibson. I hope you will join me next time on Art Speaks when artist Hank Willis-Thomas and curator Rue Hockley will be with us.